you want to follow along, you can see Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, we're just going to read through it. I'm uh, going to do it a little bit different today. We're going to kind of do a quick summary and then kind of delve into some of the, the finer points. When you look at kind of what this is, I don't know if your Bibles have that, but a lot of Bibles will put headings. Those aren't in the text, but it kind of helps us. In the, you know, Paul's change of plans. You know, it sounds like it might be a bad sitcom. It's like, what's this going to have to do? with my life. But what you see in, in these writings, especially, obviously, this is a letter to the church in Corinth, and we talked about that uh, last week as kind of a setup. What you see, these are what we call uh, descriptive texts. They describe things. Uh, but descript descriptions can help us. Uh, we see Jesus uh, healing someone. We see Jesus talking with someone. And that's just describing what happened, but we also get stuff that we can use. And you're going to get this here, too, and you kind of try to pick that out. It's got a, a context, certainly, of a, of a church in the first century, but uh, quickly comes to help us if we understand it correctly. Another thing, just as kind of in passing, uh, remember these chapter divisions are also not divinely inspired. And in my opinion, this is a bad one. We should go on to verse 4 in chapter 2, and I'm in charge, so that's what we're going to do. So let's start with uh, verse 12 here. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understood, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Why I was vacillating when I wanted to do this, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one who I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I come, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish and heart and many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know that I have abundant love that I have for you. So what's the summary of this path? What is he doing? Um, some of this, he's starting, and he's going to do this later, defending himself. You wouldn't think Apostle Paul would have to do this, but he defends himself against a number of charges that uh, leaders in the Corinthian church and uh, people were, we see this in 1 Corinthians, we see it coming here in 2nd. They, sa they said he wasn't sincere. They said he was deceptive. He, he exploited them. They said he was unreliable. They said he was boastful and he was weak. And he's going to deal with that throughout the whole letter. 
And he sees his change of plans regarding visiting the Corinthians as beneficial to him because he loves them. You know, remember the second commandment? Not, not out of the ten, but greatest commandment. You have to do this. If you do this, it's great. It's a, it's a pastor thing. You learn it in seminary. Um, the first greatest commandment is to love God. Uh, you know, sacrifice, willful, caring for God, being obedient to him. Second is to love his people. And that's what he's trying to do here. And we'll talk about that, obviously, more in detail. But he loves them as brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's decided this is something that he should do. But the whole key to this passage, it's the whole key to the Bible, is Christ is the center of everything. We'll hit this really hard at the end. Everything points to him, uh, especially in the Bible, but I think we can see that even in our own lives. And so verse 20, which we'll hit a little harder, it's a verse you've probably heard that all of the promises that were could be covenant uh, in God finds their yes in Christ. You know, what did Jesus say? I did not come to abolish the old law. I came to fulfill it. Everything finds their yes in him. This is what Jesus thought. This is what Paul thought. This is what New Testament teaches. So even that some of the promises have not come to fruition, we know the promise is that sin will be defeated and death will be gone. That's not there yet, right? But... When it happens, it'll be because of Jesus. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, Revelation 21, Isaiah has uh, scriptures in there too. That's going to happen. It's not here yet. Uh, but again, that's going to be because of Jesus. Everything of eternal importance is fulfilled in Christ. Uh, this is uh, what the Christian church has proclaimed because the Bible has proclaimed this. And then lastly, one more general thing. The tone here implies that these Christians should heed the apostles' instructions as authoritative and from God. Paul knows this. I'm sure you've experienced that. Maybe you're trying to tell somebody about your faith and, you know, the words aren't coming, but, and, and maybe they're not the way you want to convey them, but you know it's true. You know this is right. You know he's in your heart. And, and it almost sounds boastful, doesn't it? But it's not, and it isn't for Paul here. He knows that he was chosen by God to do this. He knows that he was guilty, and now he's blameless before a holy God and has a task set out for him. Whether they believe it or not is almost irrelevant to him other than he loves them and wants them to benefit from him. So they need to figure out how to put into practice those things that he is teaching them, which is what we need to do too. So getting into some of the specifics. Paul mentions his conscience here. Um, what do you think of when you hear the word conscience? Oh, I forgot you're not Baptist. You won't say anything. Um, any Baptist in here? Uh, <laughs> what do you think when you think conscience? I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's one of them. If you watch enough UFC, that will be something you're hoping consciousness stays. Um, I think of Jiminy Cricket. I don't know why. Because wasn't he the conscience for Pinocchio? Um, you know, classic film. Um, but that's kind of, it's some way to look at it. You know, it's, it's what is the conscience? It's used in the Bible quite often. Uh, it's the conscience is a part of the person's soul that judges or discerns right from wrong. Uh, he uses, Paul uses this term often. He wants his conscience to be clear. You see that in Acts 24. So I always, this is Paul talking, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I think we should try to do this. Do you think Jesus had a clear conscience? 
Or do you think he thought, man, I wonder if I did that right? Or, you know, what am I here for? You think Jesus had any trouble with that? I think he had a clear conscience. And I think we can get there. Don't get cocky. But sometimes in life, we do things for the benefit, we think, of God for someone, and they don't take it that way. Right? Well, what's your motive? You know, we've talked about with judging. Always judge graciously. You have to judge, right? You have to figure out how to get here, right? Left, forward, fast, slow. You're always judging things. You know, but are you doing it graciously? Why would you tell somebody they're doing something that's dishonoring God? Is it because we don't do that or because you love them? Well, then you might say it differently. <laughs> you know, so I think, is your conscience clear? It's always some. apparently we can have that. And you kind of see this in Romans 2. I don't know if, you know, Romans is kind of set up in the three C's, and it starts up, Romans 1 is creation. It tells us how we can see God if we look at the stars. There's no excuse. Anybody should know there's a creator. Um, that doesn't save us, but it tells us that God exists. Romans 3 and on is about Christ, all the way through chapter 16. Romans 2 is about conscience. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles don't have the law. They didn't get it passed down at Sinai. They weren't there. But they demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts. This is that image of God stuff you get from Genesis 1. God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. And one of the biggest things about being created, being an image bearer, is you have a moral conscience. Not just for right and wrong as far as man's laws, but what does God want and what does evil want? And you try to focus on that. So he says it's written on their hearts. They have something within them because they're an image bearer. They're not a donkey. You know, you're not supposed to act like a donkey. You're supposed to act like a person. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them if they're doing evil or tell them that they are doing right if they're doing good. That's a really good verse to know. There's no excuse for people who say, well, I don't, I, I'm not a Christian. I don't follow. God says, yeah, but, you know, I created you in my image. You, you, you know well enough. The Holy Spirit certainly helps us a lot, but you know enough to know God exists. You know enough that you're guilty. It's going to take Christ to get to the next step, right? And that's what Romans 3 on is. But conscience, think about that. Do I have a clear conscience? You're talking to somebody, maybe you have a relationship problem. What is your motive? You know, and talk to somebody else if you have to. Um, hopefully, preferably somebody who's actually in the room. Because um, if you talk to yourself, they might be careful with that. Um, of course, if you do it by yourself, who would know? You know, I guess so. Do whatever you want. If you remember Martin Luther, you know, started the Reformation, the 1517 in Halloween, he puts those uh, 95 theses on the Wittenberg Castle, or our, our church. He, uh, he gets tried because the Catholic Church at that time didn't like what he was saying. Um, but he thought he was coming from what the Bible, and so at the very end, they want him to recant all his writings, and he says, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. What a good line. Almost biblical, isn't it? And it is kind of biblical. It's summing that up. My conscience is held captive to the word of God. So it's not just this subjective, you know, little devil, little angel. And they have to be little because if they're bigger, you couldn't get them on the screen. So they're little. Saying, don't do this, don't do that. That might be there. That's subjective. But you have the word of God. We can look there and see what's evil and what's good, what pleases God and what dishonors him. So that's always something to remember. 
So don't think of conscious as Jiminy Cricket. As cute as he is, he's not all that helpful. Um, and we don't want to spiritually be knocked unconscious either. A lot of people go through, you don't even think about why you're doing something. Ultimately, it's about relationships. Are you trying to help the relationship with Christ, or are you just trying to be annoying? And I found that I'm pretty good at the latter, if I work at it. I can be annoying. I might annoy you today. Maybe I'll go over time. Uh, no, we don't do that. Uh, at least try not to. And then you get in verse 14, you get this boasting, you know, which sounds bad. I thought we we're not supposed to boast, but it's boasting of other people. Um, and I thought about, well, how do I say this that makes sense? And then the NLT just clarifies it. Uh, the New Living Translation, that's the green Bible that we use, a little more dynamic translation tries to help us with. And what also came to mind is my uh, two-year-old granddaughter's uh, almost got potty drained and taken care of. Um, I would say she's there. Uh, so when she comes over to my house and she has to go, then she'll go and we do all the steps, you know. So, you know. Hour and a half later, when she's done, um, no, it's not that long. She's pretty quick. Papa, are you proud of me? You know, Papa, are you proud of me? Why? Because she's done something to be proud of. And that's what Paul is, I, we're, you know, you be proud of us because we brought you the true gospel. And we'll be proud of you because you're following the true. This is what it's, it's about pride in they're being like Christ. They're following the Holy Spirit. It's not boasting like, you know, you know, I could. Maybe I'll do that next time. We'll put a bunch of pictures of all my kids. You'd love that, right? Home films. <laughs> you do realize home films are already good for those who, it's their home. <laughs> you know, do it quick. Um, and just note to self and you guys, you know, Facebook too. Uh, well, yeah, one picture is worth a thousand words. You don't need a million words out there. Hint. Now, verse 15 is another, another help. You know, one, one of the things I tell you to do if you want to study the Bible, you've got, we've got the ESV, which is what I'm reading from, which is the white one out there, English Standard Version, kind of a word-for-word a, a -word translation. Uh, it, it, it keeps a lot of the words and doesn't clean them up. Uh, it cleans up the sentence structure. Then you've got the NLT, which is an easy reader, gives you some things. If you read both of those, you know you've got 230 scholars helping you understand the text. You know, none of this is done in isolation. They take time. Uh, these guys are bright. They know what they're doing. They know the original languages. So if I ever have a time when it, I'm like, I wonder what this means, I always go to the NLT. And then if that doesn't work, I go to another version. I've got the beauty of having uh, 81 versions on here. So if anybody tells me, you know, not an iPad is worse than a book, it's like, I beg to differ. Um, it is a book, genius, right? <laughs> it's just glows. It's the only thing different. Uh, but what, if you go to the NLT, it clarifies. I'm going to read it in the ESV. Because I was sure of this, or I could be proud of you guys, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. If you take that in isolation, it could mean a lot of different things, right? But in context, I think the NLT hits it. Since I was so sure of your understanding and trust, I wanted to give you a double blessing by visiting you twice. This is about his visit. You know, it's not... This is not a theological concept about, you know, we are repentant and then we get the grace and the unmerited favor. Yeah, that's in Paul's writings, but that's not what he's talking about here. Um, grace is used in different ways. You have to go by context. So he's just saying, I'm, the reason I want to come to you is, is to help your faith, you know, a second experience of the grace that we have when we're together. It's not about uh, saving grace here. It's about sanctifying grace that comes through. I hope that makes some sense. And it gives you an idea of how this gets cleaned up if you just look at versions that are more contemporary if they're done well. A lot of the guys on uh, the NLT 
translation committee are from TEDS, our Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is the E-Free Divinity School. Uh, so they have the same exact beliefs that you do, the same thing that's in our beliefs out there. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of cool uh, that we know that they're uh, no agenda that's going to be different than, than ours, although they shouldn't have an agenda. And then he goes into this, was essentially it's a long way to say, I'm not lying to you. I'm not saying I'm going to do one thing and do another. And he defends himself. They've it apparently, somebody was saying he's untrustworthy. You know, like the father that says it's too busy to, I'll be home, you know, and, and then they don't make it home. You know? <laughs> is, that, is this what's going on? Um, and I think you have something in the background. If you want to turn, you can go to Matthew 5. This is in the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and it's a little bit of what we talked about with the, uh, the kids. Uh, Jesus is talking about oaths here. But it's talking about true telling the truth when you make a commitment to someone. He said, again, I, you have heard that it was said of the old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, which tells us probably this is what people took oaths of. What do we do? You probably get this uh, when you're a kid. It's a pinky swear, right? Um, or the double dog dare. Um, what do we, I swear in my mother's grave, sometimes you'll hear that. It's kind of morbid, but I, mean, I don't know what that means. Uh, apparently they did this, as if my word's not good enough unless I give you some other token. And Jesus said, don't do that. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything else comes from the evil one. It's kind of the summation of that ninth commandment. So, so that's in the background here. But we also have James 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Which is wise, isn't it? James is kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament. You know, you, you know your tomorrow is not guaranteed? Now that's morbid, right? <laughs> it's true, right? Who knows if you're going to be here tomorrow? God knows. We'll let him take care of it. And he's, you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I don't know. I mean, we can't even predict the weather, let alone our lives. What is your life if you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or do that. That's why that you know, you wake up in the morning, and this is the day the Lord has made, we will rejoice. I mean, because if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't be there, right? I don't know if you knew this, but uh, this is kind of an aside, but I was talking to somebody about it, but uh, the Jewish prayers, uh, ancient prayers, or most of them are in the, in, in the Psalms, but they take them, and you can read about that. The, 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 the prayer that almost everybody end with in ancient Judaism, I'm sure they still do it today, and maybe we should do it as Christians, uh, comes from Psalm 31.5, and I'll tell you in a minute, but remember, the, uh, this is a prayer, I, I remember my brother probably remembers this. We had these prayers we say before we go to bed, right? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord, my soul to keep. It would be nice if some Baptist in here. If I should, you can look at the Tim Hawkins on that one. Um, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord, my soul to take. You know that comes from Psalm 31? And this might be something that you've heard before. Psalm 31.5 says, Into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. 
for you have redeemed me. Remember when here remember in the gospel somebody said, Into your hands I commit my spirit? That was on the cross. But think about it, every time you go to sleep, you essentially put your hands in your maker. Your whole life is there, your whole soul is there. You don't remember it, do you? That's when people say, you know, people say, Did you sleep well? It's like, I don't know, I was asleep. How would I know? <laughs> I guess if I did, figured it out, I probably didn't sleep too well, right? I, I, but, but again, we think about that, and I, I've been doing that. It, it, just before you lay down on the, you know, into your hands I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed me, O oh Lord. Just a nice thing to remember, because no matter if you're at death's door or you're just at kind of the sleeping door, uh, it's nice to remember that God's in charge. Um, so, he says that if the Lord wills, let us do this or that. So what's Paul doing here? He, the yes be yes, your no be no. He's talking about we make plans and promises, don't we? Um, I've got things on my schedule that I'm promising I'm going to do. And some of these are, you know, I mean, it's really hard to do because, you know, it's, it's sacrificial. I mean, I might not like doing it. I've got to take time out of my busy schedule. I mean, like today I promised that I'm going to go golfing at 3. I mean, somebody's got to sacrifice for this stuff. <laughs> Not all, you know, like I said, you've got to have some fun, right? But, but think about that. I don't know. I mean, what could happen? I mean, I'm not trying to be morbid. I used to be an actuary. We dealt with that. But if the Lord wills, I'll golf at three. Yeah. Your yes be yes, your no be no. I don't know. And it's kind of implied that way. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite, if you want a good podcast to listen to, you know, he's passed on a couple years ago, but Ligonier Ministries, just a great Bible teacher. We've used his stuff here a lot. Uh, he would always say at the end of his sermons, and I, I don't want to steal it from him, so I don't do it, but he'd say, he would say, and I'll say it at the end, we're going to work on this, and I'll, I, he would say, if the Lord wills, next week will. You know, it's just that idea that, you know, our week is in his hands. So when Paul does this, he, yes, he promises he's coming back, but you know, things change, right? And he made the, the choice that sometimes circumstances dictate and wisdom that you make, need to make change of plan. And he's just saying, you know my character. You know, that's what he's hoping they'll understand. So this brings us to the verse that's really cool. We're going to hit this for five, six minutes here because it's important to know. All God's promises, and again, the word could be translated covenant, has been fulfilled in Christ. So all of the old covenants have been fulfilled. And we got three main covenants. But to me, this seems like it's almost a theological assessment of John 19.30. Another thing Jesus says on the cross when he received the wine, he said, it is finished. It's a great, what does he mean by that? He could just mean, I'm going to die. I think he means more than that. I think that's what Paul's getting at. Everything, it is finished. What I have done on this cross is finished for your salvation. What I will do from the tomb will vindicate it. This is what he's saying. But what Paul's saying, it's a great verse, that everything in the old covenant or the first covenant, those first three are fulfilled in him. And in what way? Well, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, the one through Abraham. What was the promise? You know, Abraham, take, you know, chapter 12 of Genesis Abraham, God comes to him. Always wondered how that worked, but I guess I'll have to wait until I die, and then maybe I won't care. But um, he tells him to go to another land, and he promises he's going to make a great nation, and then eventually great nations out of him. 
he promises him descendants. And you remember how many kids Abraham had at that time? Zero. And he was not a spring chicken. He was in his 90s. Um, and, a, and a place or a land. Those were the two things. Land of progenity. He was going to get that. But then you go to the New Testament. What are we promised? And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So this was always spiritual. It was always about being a, a child of Yahweh, here through Christ. I don't know, any Jewish people by lineage in here? Anybody spit in a cup and find out you're from Israel? But we're still, it says if you believe that you're his seed, you, you, get, you, get, to, you get all those promises too. Well, what does it mean to have descendants and place, you know? Well, we're called God's children. You're all God's children, so welcome to the family. You know, that's kind of the way the church is supposed to work. Also, back in John 14, maybe I'm pushing this a little hard, but I think it's good. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He's going to die. So he prepares a place for us in two ways. He dies so we can have that connection, and then eventually we get the eternal life with him. So there's your land. The new covenant doesn't promise a small strip of land on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. It promises you a new heaven and a new earth with new sports, maybe, hopefully, I suppose. And then lastly, Philippians 3, we know this. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. This is your first citizenship. Your second one is important. I'm not saying that, but this is number one. We have this. I love that word, citizenship. You're, you're part, of the, part of the kingdom, if you want to call it that. So the Abraham, you can see how Jesus fulfills that. We don't worry about, as, as Christians, whether or not land, I mean, you can worry about that if you want, but that's not the plain thing. What difference does it make if we get against people in Israel if they don't know who Jesus is? You know, The Mosaic Covenant, this one's pretty quick, fulfilled in Christ. What was the Mosaic Covenant about? It was about being righteous before God by grace through faith. Does that sound familiar? How was that done? Through the law and the sacrifices. Sacrifice was grace. It's in there. It was not a legalistic system. Sometimes it turned into it. I realize that, but it was never meant that. Well, how does Jesus fulfill that? It says Jesus has no need like the high priest to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, which is what the, the uh, high priest had to do on the one-year Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, he had to go in and offer sacrifice for his own sins, putting the blood on the, on the Ark of the Covenant. And then for the, those of the people, why? Why doesn't Jesus have to do that? Why don't we have blood all over the place up here, sacrificing like they did back then? Because he did the once for all when he offered up himself. Final sacrifice. So see how that's fulfilled. Jesus fulfills it. And finally, the Davidic Covenant. This is pretty easy. The Davidic Covenant is about a Messiah. Or a Christ, if you want to go with the Greek. A Messiah is going to come. He's going to usher in the kingdom and fulfill both the covenant through Abraham and Moses. This is in Second Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So maybe this is Solomon. I shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Forever. Okay, it's not Solomon. 
Um, this is the messianic. This is what people were. This is what Simeon was looking for in the temple at Christmas time when we have him, when he goes to get dedicated. This is what Anna was looking for. This is what the true believers were looking for, including the disciples. And Jesus says this all the time: Is is his kingdom here? Are we part of God's kingdom? He cast out demons. He healed, and he says this in Luke 11 after casting out a demon. And they're saying you're doing that by Satan. And he says if this. If the, by the finger of God, I cast out demons and the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. The kingdom comes when the king is here. Does that make sense? It's not done yet, but it's fulfilled and your eternity is secure. So that's kind of what I think this is talking about to us today. Jesus fulfills all of these things. And it's good to know this. Um, if you've ever had an opportunity to talk to an Orthodox Jew, which a lot of times they won't talk to Christians, and I know that's their own prerogative, because, um, like I said, some of us can be annoying. Um, but this is good to know. Uh, Jews for Jesus, which is a Messianic community that they're Jews by lineage, but followers of Yeshua, as they call him, they use the book of Hebrews almost all the time because it pretty much just takes them by the hand and says, here's how Jesus does this. And it's good to know this so you can help take by the hand. Too. The Holy Spirit will change their heart. You can't do that. But you can be a good ambassador if you know this stuff. And then to kind of finish up here, 2-4, Paul uses wisdom to decide to not give them another painful visit uh, because we talked about that last week. Apparently he already had one of those. Didn't go well. Um, not to abandon them, but because he loved them and longed to see them have joy in Christ. That should be our main goal, right? When you think about it, this is a problem with that word love. If you remember when we went through 1 John, I never used the word love, even though it's, oh, it's in there 40 times. Anybody remember what word I used? Man, the Baptists are asleep. <laughs> agape. What is agape? Well, it's a little different than what we use love for. Um, I love the Cardinals. Uh, not when they lose like they did last night, but I love the Cardinals. It's very fickle. Um, but that's not what this is talking about, is it? It's a agape love is that other-centered, willful, sacrificial care for someone. It's that, and this is what Paul's trying to do, and this is hard sometimes for us. We have to decide if our actions are truly loving in the eyes of God because it's so easy in our culture to say we love somebody and say I'm going to bless what they're doing even though it clearly dishonors Christ. Folks, that's not loving. Call what you want, and it's not love. It's not the love God's asking for us. You know, Paul could have just said, whatever you want, I just want you to be happy. You know, you'll be happy if you know Christ. If you, if you follow Jesus and understand what you're doing, happiness gets thrown in. But if you're just trying to be happy without him, it's not going to work. And, and Paul knew that. So think about this. True God-honoring love must be other-centered and willful. If it's just emotional, that's going to come and go. Uh, you're looking for the best interest of the one you love. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes you might need to talk to somebody. You might talk to the person. Is this in their best interest? And to tell them that what they're doing that they think is loving, even though it clearly is against what God has revealed, uh, that, that blessing that is, is not loving. Um, was Jesus always loving, you think, in his... Or was he mean sometimes and loving other times? 
He's God, and we know from 1 John, God is. I think he was always loving. So was he loving in Matthew 23 when he said, you Pharisees, hypocrites. <laughs> was that loving? I think it was. Now, we've got to be careful doing that because I don't know if you've realized that, but you're not Jesus, and neither am I. Uh, Jesus got angry, and he did it in a God-honoring way. I tend to get angry in a non-God-honoring way. Um, so we have to be careful. We're not Jesus. But ultimately telling someone that what they're doing is okay and acceptable when you know in your heart it's not, it's not loving. That does not help them at all. Who are you trying to serve there? I don't know. <laughs> not Jesus, I don't think. Do you know some of those Pharisees that Jesus got in their face and told them they were hypocrites eight straight times in one chapter? We find out in, in, in Acts 4 and 5 that some of those came to faith. Maybe it's because Jesus loved them enough to tell them where they were at is not where they need to be. Yeah, be careful with that. Um, but when who is Jesus the most compassionate to or showing the most tender loving to? People that knew they were guilty, the humble. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We have to remember that. So think about that when you're trying to love someone in your family or love someone in your church or love someone and help them. Think about does this line up with what is revealed in God's word? And if it doesn't, then that's not really loving. And I'm not going to say it's going to be easy. They killed him, so be careful. Choose your words carefully. But you have to remember who you're serving. Who are you trying to be an ambassador for? So, where many today get off track is forgetting to let God's word and spirit guide them in what is someone's best interest. And this should always be in the background from 1 Corinthians. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If that is put at stake in your loving someone, then it's not loving. And it's not the thing we should. That has to be the center of who we are. So, concluding. You know, this, even though this portion seemed like it's a bunch of travel plans, you know, uh, Paul, he, he helps us show what, what's the things he goes through. It's levied against him. He, the core of this all is that middle verse in 20. It kind of comes into that and then comes off of it, that Christ should be the center of who we are. This is what it means to follow him. He has to be the center. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you're a true follower back then or now, you must view everything through him. It's got, you got to put the Jesus glasses on all the time. And how do you do that? Word and spirit. Pray, worship, serve, study, showing that you really want to know him better. We don't want to filter him through the lens of the world. That's what too many people do. Or, and this is an evangelical problem, we, we filter him through our experience of him. I look around, I know a lot of you have experienced his grace. I know that. I see how you live. I know what you believe. But don't filter everything through your experience because everybody's experience is different. Filter everything through what he said and who he is. The experience will make sense because sometimes we have experiences that aren't of him. People have those, you know. How would I know? How do I know if this is from God or not? Word and spirit and maybe some wisdom. He is the center. Your experience should be looked at through the lens of Christ and who he is and what he's, what he's told us. And finally, we must not reason from our experience to Christ. You know, 
I remember when I first became a Christian. You know, I look at my experience and, and how that works, but I, I need to look at who he is and then filter my experience through that. And when you tell somebody about your faith, make him the primary subject. Because the person you're talking to is not going to come and experience his grace like you did. Nobody does. Everybody's unique. You may bumble over how it went in your life and all that and say how you came to faith and how the Spirit changed your heart. That's all great, but they better leave with the gospel. And don't do this. Don't tell them you've always been a Christian. I don't even know what that means. Because if they don't believe and they're an adult, they're not going to experience it like you did there, are they? Because what do they do with that? Well, I haven't been. Am I just in trouble? No, just tell them, and I always tell people, when did you realize, it might have been three, when did you realize that you were guilty before a holy God and you needed to experience his grace? And so now you're living a life of gratitude. I don't care if you know the date. I don't give a diddly. Sometime in grade school. I don't know. When did you know that you needed a Savior? If you got a date, write it down. In fact, if somebody really wants a date and they think you have to have a date, Go home after this, get on your knees, give your life to Christ, write the date down and hand it to him. Got a date. If that's what we're doing. It's not about a date, it's about knowing this is real. That's really all that it comes down to. But let your make let Christ interpret who you are. Try to think about how he sees you. Because we're going to discover our true self in him and him alone. Because he's not only your redeemer and your savior, he's also your creator and sustainer. Let's pray. Father, we look at that verse 20 and it just uh, gives me goose pimples to think that everything, all those covenants in the Old Covenant, on the, in the Old Testament were fulfilled through your Son and that everything, it's so simple for us. All we have to do is just let Jesus take us by the hand and lead us uh, both through his word and, and your spirit. We thank you for that. May, may we may not make it too difficult. May we have the desire to worship you study about you, to pray to you, and serve you always. Amen.